Well, church, um, that song that we just sang it really could be the thematic anthem of everything that we've been going through, right? Through Genesis and what we've looked at through Jacob's life. And, and, and a man who was not seeking the Lord, Jacob was not seeking the Lord. He was not seeking the Lord. Please get that through your head. He was not seeking the Lord, but the Lord was seeking him, right? And that was the hope. That's the grace. That's the message. That's the, the joy for all of us. It's when we're prone to wander, he's prone to chase. And so, only three weeks left. Only three weeks left in our journey through Genesis, church. Uh, Crazy that it's been that fast, but three weeks left. Um, So, here's the graph again. If you haven't taken a picture or haven't got me to send that to you, this is the book of Genesis. And we've walked all the way through it. We've made it all the way to Jacob. We're going to be wrapping up Jacob. And then um, we'll be concluding into Joseph. Even though Joseph, who, who was definitely... Um, a patristic father, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, um, even though he was that, ultimately through the tribe of Judah, his brother would come the promised one and be the ultimate blessing. But again, all that to say, as we ended last week thinking about Jacob, um, twas grace had brought him safe thus far, and grace would lead him home. That was it. And, and so if you haven't um, caught up with us, go to the website, catch up on all those messages. That's where we're at in the book of Genesis. We've made it all the way to Genesis chapter 33. So God's grace has been this theme. God's grace, His relentless, amazing, scandalous grace that He forgives those that don't deserve forgiveness, that it's not deserved, that it's not earned. It's just grace. It's just an un, uh, a relentless, uh, reigning grace. And so that's been God's grace. He's relentless, reigning this grace. And after 20 years, after 20 years, He has left home... Um, He has made a family, and he's now headed back with his wives, with his kids, with his goats, with his money, all this kind of stuff. He's headed back to his original home where he had fled from. You remember, he fled from his brother. Um, He knew Esau was going to kill him, and so he had stole the blessing. So he headed off 20 years later. We've now made it back. He's journeying back. So Jacob's fear, we've seen God's grace, but now we're looking at Jacob's fear. Jacob's fear is this. He's headed home, and guess who's coming to meet him? Esau, his brother. Not only Esau, but Esau with a 400-man army. So he's a little bit fearful. And we remember Esau's last words. Esau's last words in chapter 27, verse 41 is this. I will do what to my brother? Somebody tell me. Kill him. I'm going to kill him. Esau says, I'm going to kill my brother. And he doesn't mean it like when we say to our kids, I'm going to kill you. And like he meant it like, I'm going to kill you. Okay, he was going to kill his brother. That's the last thing he remembers. 20 years later, he's getting back. He hears these words echoing. My brother is going to kill me. So he comes back with this astounding fear. Here we go. Genesis chapter 33, 1 through 20. What we've been doing, church, if you're a guest with us, what we do by nature is we go straight through books of the Bible. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, line by line, word by word. And so we walk through books of the Bible. Well, in Genesis, hopefully you've learned that going through a narrative... Sometimes you can't go just word by word, verse by verse. You've got to go through movements or themes. And that's what we've been doing. We've been tracking these movements of Jacob. And so we won't go through the text like we typically do, but we will go through it, and I'll explain what happens in that story. We'll get points away from it. So, again, four more movements of Jacob. And that'll take us through actually about five or six chapters. So four movements of Jacob that we're going to continue in today. Movement number one is this, Genesis 33, 1 through 20. Jacob comes limping face to face 
with Esau. Limping. Remember, he's just wrestled with who? He's just wrestled with God, right? And in this wrestling match, he's contending with God, and God graciously touches him on the hip, and he's limping. And that limp, as we remember from last week, is this. Just because God allows something dangerous or or we perceive as dangerous or harmful or or hurting to us, we perceive something as, that, that doesn't seem like a very loving thing to do. Sometimes the limps that God gives us is the very grace that he's giving us through the limp. Remember this? So he's walking with a limp. He knocks his hip out of socket. And in that moment, he changes his name to no longer Jacob the deceiver. You'll walk with a limp, but your name is now Israel... The one who contends with God. And every time you step, you'll remember that I love you through this limp. So he comes limping, (laughs) limping back to Esau. And he meets him face to face, the brother that he's betrayed. There's a four-layered approach as he approaches his brother. Here's the four layers. He's going to put his animals out front. Then he's going to come bowing seven times before his brother. Then he's going to put his servants' wives and their kids in an order. Then he's going to put Leah and her kids in an order. Then he's going to put Rachel and her kids in an order. So there's a seven-layered approach. So as Esau's coming, he's sent and he gets animals. Then he gets Jacob bowing seven times. Then he gets the servants' wives and their kids. Then he gets Leah. Y'all remember Leah? Le- Leah? Leah. <laughs> you, remember, you remember Leah? Um, Tyler, again, kept calling her lazy-eyed Leah. And I said, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that, Tyler LaFoy. And so then you get uh, Rachel. And so he heads on in this order. You can see, obviously, who he loves most by the order in which he sends them. That's just true. It's what happened in the Bible. So he sends this approach. And we can perceive this as, okay, he's approaching the Lord in... uh, He's approaching his brother in humility. Or we can perceive it another way. He's once again fearful... And he's attempting to reverse God's sovereign decree. This is what he keeps doing over and over and over. You've heard this now for six weeks as we've studied the last two brothers. The prophecy the Lord gave was, Your to Isaac, your older son will serve the younger son. He's heard this all of his life, and even now in this moment, he's trying to usurp that, and he's going, no, 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 I'll bow down before him. I'll be the one who bows, and the Lord's not going to have it. You would think, even in this moment of, okay, humility, the Lord's going to let him bow before his brother, and he doesn't. So Jacob, once again, is trying to reverse the order that God's laid out. So he comes face to face with him. And what we're going to see is that his plans are worthless in light of God's plans. When will he ever learn? He tries to bow down. The brother says, stand up. What are you doing? He tries to give him flocks and goats. And the brother says, I don't want your flocks and goats. So even in this moment, even in Esau's 400-man army, he's thinking, Jacob's thinking, oh, they're coming to fight. The last thing he said, he was going to kill me. But even in the 400-man army that comes... They're just there to make sure that Jacob can make it to his next destination safely. It's crazy what the Lord does. We get this perspective sometimes of life, and and this is what I see, but then God does something totally different, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But it's a reminder on this journey, and here's takeaway one I think we can get from this. Takeaway one from this text. That we should be mature enough as believers, to seek clarity in our assumptions. And when we do, it'll often reveal 
that God is trying to be more kind to us than we could have ever dreamed or imagined. You all know this. In our assumptions, we often make a of you and me. Right? This is what assumptions do to us. We assume something. And even at this moment, we see the assumption. In other words, our human assumptions are often just totally mis, uh, misconstrued and skewed in our brains. Um, and we're not willing to take the time to be vulnerable in our assumptions and realize what God's really trying to do through those things that we assume are evil. And so here's the deal. We'll say stuff like this. Well, that person, they just don't like me. They don't like me. Well, how do you know they don't like you? Well, just, I mean, just the way they look at me. Well, they could just have PBF. If you know, you know. They could just have a face that just doesn't look approachable. And you're sitting there looking at them, assuming, just, and it's me. I mean, this is my face. I'll be sitting somewhere, and, and Julie Beth or somebody else will be, why are you so mad? I'm like, I'm not mad at all. Well, you sure look mad. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm contemplating clowns eating cotton candy <laughs> in my brain. But it's because my face, I don't have one of those happy faces like some of you guys have. Now, here's the flip side lie. Some of y'all just are blessed with this happy face, and you're killing people in your brain, aren't you? Uh-huh, yeah. And, and sometimes we just have this assumption because of this face, whatever. And, and in this moment, we go, well, I assume this rather than just walking up and have the vulnerability to say, hey, what's going on? And then watching all of a sudden, oh, well, I'm thinking about clouds and cotton candy. And it changes the day. He's assuming. He's assuming my brother is going to kill me. He's not even asking the question, what is God doing behind the scene that I don't have a clue about? Or this right here. Oh, well, they don't have time for me. They... They're out spending time with other people. Listen to me, church. Social media is killing our society with that question right there. Oh, they don't have time for me. They're, they're too busy hanging out with everybody else. It's that assumption. This happened just this past week. I won't say too much. Uh, with somebody who, who went to the movies and uh, posted a picture with them and their friends at the movies, and they're hanging out at the movies, and blah, 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 blah. And here was the statement. Oh, well, they don't have time for me because they're hanging out with other people. Well, here's the question I had for them. Number one, have you asked them, do they not have time for you? Number two, have you, do they even know that you exist? <laughs> Number three, do, do they know that you want to hang out with them? And here's the thing with this social media. We're looking at it, and we're seeing edited lives seeking instant approval... And we look at it and we go, oh, well, look, they're with those people. They don't have time for me. When you don't have the guts to walk up and go, hey, I, let's hang out. It's these assumptions. You've got to be careful with assumptions and this, this warped view of reality. God's doing things behind the scene and we don't have the vulnerability to ask. And this is, I think, in this moment, we're convinced sometimes that, that God is has got this snarl against us when he's got a, a smile and kindness waiting for us. If we'll just be vulnerable to walk into somebody else's life. Jacob, not willing to do this. Walks up, kneels down. I don't, gosh, money, this is... And his brother is coming to greet him with a 400-man army to escort him to safety. God's always doing something bigger. If we'll just be vulnerable enough to be transparent. And so the clan is introduced after this. 
There's some, uh, Esau does question why these gifts are sent. Jacob says, please accept my blessing that's brought to you because God's dealt with me graciously and because I have enough, chapter 33, verse 11. And then in this moment, Esau says, hey, come on home, back home to Seir with me. And he says he's coming. Jacob says he's coming, but then he thinks it's better to sidetrack to Succoth. And he's supposed to be going to Bethel, um, but he gets sidetracked and he decides to go off to the edge of the promised land that God had promised. So here's the story. Go home, Jacob. <laughs> go home and take the promised land. Go to Bethel. And Jacob gets there. He has an opportunity. And here's old Jacob again going, mm, I want to obey, but just a little bit of obedience. I want to get close. I want to get right on the edge. And so he doesn't go right to where he's supposed to go. All this to say, sometimes it's just hard to be both Jacob and Israel at the same time, isn't it? He's Jacob the deceiver by nature and by birth. He's Israel the beloved one by the promise of God. And sometimes we wrestle with that tension, don't we? If we're just honest, my nature, who God's made me to be, ah, so I want to be obedient, but I find myself being partially obedient, hoping that that's enough, right? And so this is what he does. And he could have just been honest with his brother, made a beeline for Bethel, put up the altar, but he's still learning. He's still learning that God ultimately does know best, and he doesn't have to be a dishonest deceiver. He could have just been obedient at the forefront. What I'm saying is, the brother got distracted. He got distracted. I think there's a lot to learn here. We get distracted, don't we? My goal on any trip that I take, especially if we're headed down to Mobile or the beach, especially if we're headed down south, um, my goal is is pretty simple. I want to wake up before the sun rises. I want to pile the kids in the car so that they're asleep and don't talk the whole time. I then want to make it down to the destination right as the sun is popping up to wake me up so that I don't crash the car off the road. And then if I can do that and watch the sun set up and have a whole full day, I have won. Like I have defeated life. I have conquered. I have, I've succeeded. That's my goal on trips. But I've got a nemesis that has just popped up. And this nemesis has just popped up for a lot of us and has caught a lot of you off guard. That nemesis... Bucky's. What on earth is this gas station slash Walmart slash grocery store slash drugstore slash clothing store? What is this place? And, and it's just something about Bucky's. I've got to go in and I've got to get the barbecue and I've got to get those cracked laced almonds and then perhaps pick up a garden hose. I mean, it's, it's like the most bizarre place. But in that distraction, here's the deal. Heading towards my destination, if I get distracted by just what I think and what I want and whatever, it's going to hit my wallet, it's going to hit my schedule, it's going to hit my time, and ultimately it's going to hit my waistline. And that distraction gets us off cue. It's exactly what's just happened to Jacob. Go to Bethel! Just trust me! I will make your day! Just go there! Okay, I'm going to go there. And then he starts... And then he's at Bucky's. And it cost him. And it's going to cost him dearly by going to the outer banks 
rather than where God tells him to go. Chapter 34. Second movement. Jacob has come face to face limping with his brother Esau. He doesn't believe God's going to be kind. He's not mature enough to seek clarity. Let's learn from that. And then number two, Jacob's daughter Dinah is going to be defiled by a Canaanite boy because of his decision to sidetrack. So here's the deal. Dinah's his daughter. It's Leah's daughter with him. Uh, They're now living there in Succoth. They've they've not gone to Bethel. They've not followed Esau even to Seir. They've gone to Succoth. And in doing so, she goes out to meet the ladies of the land. Now, if she would have gone to Bethel and walked out, she would have met the people of God. But she doesn't. Instead... Her family clan is in this place. Uh, She is deflowered and defiled. I'll leave it at that by this pagan boy. And I'm going to call him a boy because only boys rape people. He's a boy. He's a child. And so in this moment, there's this passion and this rape and this obsession and all this kind of stuff. And just in his, 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 his immaturity and just, he's just not a man. He's just not. And in this, and I'm talking about physically a man. You guys know what I'm talking about. I'm talking maturity level. And, and, and in this moment, he does something with her. And you can go read the text. And he, it says he seizes her and then he takes her. And there's just all this kind of defilement. And I'll take a sidetrack there just to say this. We've got to be really careful about our relationships Yes, the whole point I'm trying to get to is Jacob's decision does make an impact further than he ever dreamed or imagined. But when the Scripture tells us not to be unequally yoked, that's not fundamentalism. It's not legalism. It's not overbearing. If you or your kids choose to surround yourself and immerse yourself with unrestrained paganism, don't be shocked when unrestrained paganism takes over. Be careful. And so here's the deal. Are Christian relationships perfect? No. Absolutely not. But statistically speaking, if there is genuine, true conversion in a relationship, statistically speaking, those relationships indeed are far healthier than any other relationship. Parents. It's not a joke who we allowed our kids to surround themselves with. It's not a joke. It's not overbearing to look at our kids and go, no, you can't hang out there. But mom, that's where all the... I want to be one of the cool kids, one of the cool kids. You might be a cool kid until it gets really dirty and bad. Let's be careful. Life's not about are we trying to get our kids on the who's who list. Life's about are we teaching our kids righteousness, holiness, seeking after the Lord. That's what life's about. And in this moment, Jacob goes, ah, it'll be okay. And what happens? His daughter feels the full blow of this. And in this moment, the father, now I will say this, as the text goes on, he does indeed genuinely love her. After this moment, whether it's just passion or whatever it is, he does, he does want her. He, he wants her. I would read this text to mean as a commodity, but that's a whole other story for another day. You may read the text to mean that like he genuinely loves her. Regardless, he goes to his father and he says, I want that person as my wife. 
And so the father and the boy are willing to give any bride price to make the marriage work, give away land, access to all the women, herds, anything, and everything. Now, this is where the text gets pretty bizarre. As if Genesis hasn't been pretty bizarre enough, right? Jacob's clan, not Jacob, Jacob's clan says, okay, here's the deal. You can have Dinah as your daughter, as your bride, if all of the men in your clan are willing to get circumcised which is the mark, obviously, of Israel's clan. This is where it's twisted to abuse the holy, but nonetheless, this is what's going on in the text. So they agree. And on the third day, when they're all incapacitated, we'll leave it there, when they can't move, when it's bad time, okay? On the third day, Dinah's brothers rise up and kill every man of the city by the sword. Obviously, they can't get up. But they capture all their flock, all their kids, all their women. They plunder everything. Jacob's sons have learned well from their father, haven't they? Jacob, the deceiver, has taught his kids to deceive. This is all they know. Get what you want. Get it at any cost. And in this moment, rather than trusting the Lord again... They've learned from their father, and they take matters into their own hands. Jacob is freaking out in the story. He's going to become a stench to the people, and one day will eventually curse his own children in the day where he passes away. We'll get to that later, not today, in the text. Takeaway number two from this text, I think we can see, we avoid self-inflicted wounds and wounds to innocent bystanders by fully obeying God the first time. Now, some of us, again, have to learn this lesson the hard way. But why? Why? Why will we not just listen? If we'll just fully obey the first time, it'll avoid a lot of heartache to ourselves and heartache to those around us. Jacob is now experiencing the full weight of his sinful choice, personally. And he's experiencing the full weight through Dinah. And Dinah is experiencing the full weight of her father's sinful choice. That's just true. And so, three things about this I'll say real fast and then we'll move on. Number one is this. Church, my sin is never simply my sin. Did you hear that? My sin is never simply just my sin. What I mean by that is this. I do believe there is something called a generational curse. But I also do believe that you can be the one to break that curse through the power of the Spirit. And it looks like this. It looks like somebody down the line chose to abuse this in their life and then the child learned that and so then they just chose to abuse it and then it just keeps on. And it's a, it's a personal choice, but that generational curse is really just you going, well, I want to do because that looked fun or whatever. And it just keeps happening over and over and over and over. You can be the one who says, no, I'll be the one who obeys the Lord now. You can do that. But nonetheless, our sin is never simply our sin. It always ripples to somebody else somewhere. So let's be careful and mindful about this. This is what happened in Jacob's life. He chooses. Again, Jacob, go to Bethel. It's simple. Just go to Bethel. That's all you got to do. Buckies. Let's be mindful of the buckies in our lives. And be willing to go, I'm not going to take the exit. I'm going to Bethel. Number one, my sin's never simply my sin. Number two, almost obedience is always disobedience. 
almost obedience is always disobedience. We do this with our kids all the time. If I could say anything to you, and again, our kids now, we've got one in college and then one about to head to college and then one that's pulling up. So we're kind of in, I was talking to somebody this morning, we're the anomaly at Safe Haven. Todd, like we're the anomaly, okay? We've got some people who are like, kids are already out of the house and doing their own thing. And then we've got a whole bunch of y'all with these little ones. And like, there's a few of us that are like stuck right in between, you know, we got some that are out and some that are in and whatever. And so we're trying to all learn from together. But those of you with younger kids, if I could say one, two, one thing to you is this. Don't play the one, two, three obey game. Or the three, two, one obey game. I'm going to give you three seconds. You got three seconds to bring that ball to the dog. I don't, that's all I could come up with, right? Here's what you've just taught them in that. You've just taught them that they can disobey for three seconds before you mean anything. Just be careful. Almost obedience is disobedience. When we say to our kids, Hey kids, um, do not go play by that street. That doesn't mean you can get five feet from the curb and still be safe. It means stay back. Take the trash out. Doesn't mean we can just grab the trash and just pile it up right at the door, and just kind of leave it there to rot in our own house. It means take the trash out. And in this moment, he's almost obedient. Go to Bethel. Okay, I'll go to the edge of the promised land to another city that's not Bethel, and maybe that'll be okay for you. And the Lord goes, no, I want full obedience, not almost obedience. And then number three. My sin is never simply uh, my sin. Almost obedience is actually disobedience. And then number three, faithfulness, the flip side, does indeed send an equal and opposite ripple effect of grace. When we're obedient, the Lord does stuff that just changes things in our lives and everybody else's life. Things get better. That's the opposite of disobedience is faithfulness. And in faithfulness, He does crazy awesome things if they'll just... And if we'll just listen. I heard this story. I don't know if it's true or not, but it is a great story. I'll be, I'll be the pastor who tells you up front that I don't know if it's true or not, but it's one heck of a story, so we're going to go with it, okay? There's a story about this, uh, this guy named Jack. Jack had gone to a bridge. And it was a super high bridge in another state. And he's standing there, and he's, he's grabbed up some pebbles off of the ground, and he... Just tossed them off, watching them fall to the bottom, just count and see how far and how big it was and all this kind of stuff. Well, so Jack's there on the bridge, and about that time, this, this guy named Rob drives up in a truck. And as he's driving up in a truck, he slams on the brakes and he flings the door open. And Jack turns around and looks at him. And, and, and Rob goes, I feel like I'm, my, my heart is having a heart attack right now. I feel pressure on my chest. I feel like that I'm having a heart attack and, and I can't drive anymore and he's scared and he's... And Jack goes, okay, well, um, I, I can help. You know, and so he hops in the car and he says, the closest hospital is 15 miles from here and, and there's... Boom! Take off. They're driving. They head on to the hospital. They finally get to the hospital. Well, the end of the story is this, that the doctor do the things and all this kind of stuff. Well, Rob makes it. 
And so Jack's relieved, and, and he goes home, and, and so Rob is there, and he's still in the hospital. Well, well Jack decides, you know what, I'm going to go back. It's about five or six days later. I'm going to go back and visit Rob just to kind of see how he's doing. And as he walks into the hospital room, he walks in, and, Jack, and, and Rob goes, Jack, I'm so glad you're here. He's, and, and he walks in, and there's all kind of people in the room. And he says, you don't know the rest of the story. You don't know what happened that day. The day that you were driving in, I, I was working in my business, and I felt this going on, and so I just took off, and, and I'm, I'm the owner of the business. Now, all these people in here that are visiting me right now are co-workers. These are the co-workers. This is their families. And he, he looks at him and says, Jack, I don't think you understand the impact that you really made. And he's looking around, and he goes, well, I get a little bit of it, and he begins to introduce them one by one. If you wouldn't have been able to take me, if you wouldn't have responded, then this person would have lost their job. The business would have shut down. Then this child wouldn't have been taken care of. You have no idea the impact that you made. Thank you so much for being a person of influence. Rob begins to weep. Jack begins to weep. And then Jack looks at Rob and says, No. You don't realize the impact that your life has made. And Rob goes, all I did was stop. And then Jack says, the day you pulled up was the day I was about to jump off that bridge. And our lives intersected, and you saved my life. We just never know. We just never know. We never know what God's doing in any situation. So the question is, are we willing to be faithful to the Lord in all situations? Whether it looks harmful, whether it looks hurtful, whether it looks great, whether it looks celebratory, whether no matter the situation, even in the, the darkest moment, are we willing to go, Lord, what are you doing and what do you want me to do now? And then watch the Lord blow up in your life. And send ripples of faithfulness. All that to say, obedience to the Lord is not God trying to be a cosmic killjoy. <laughs> when the Lord says obey me, it's not because He's trying to hold out on us pleasures. It's because He's trying to give us protection. He's trying to give us blessing. And He's trying to give us His felt presence when we obey. You never know what God's doing. So let's live lives of worship in all situations. I think that's the takeaway from that text. Movement number three, and then movement number four is super fast. Movement number three is this. We make it to Genesis 35. God then responds by blessing Jacob. <laughs> the point of the takeaway is you just can't escape the theme of God's scandalous grace in Genesis. He responds by blessing this person who's been disobedient. It's grace. It's scandalous. It's amazing grace. You would think God would respond by punishing because that's what some of you guys heard all of your life growing up. All of your life. One step out of line and the Lord's going to smite you with His mighty lightning bolt. Boom! Well, here's the deal. If that's true, you would get smitten with a lightning bolt about every other second, right? <laughs> He's gracious to us. He's kind to His covenant children. And in this moment, we see Him responding by blessing Jacob. Even when Jacob... With the buckies, right? So the story goes on, the history goes on with this. Well, he finally does indeed go to Bethel, 
He leaves, he goes to Bethel, he gets on the right track. Praise the Lord (laughs) that just because we got off track don't mean we can't get back. He goes on to Bethel and he worships. Jacob then commands that all foreign gods be destroyed, all jewelry be destroyed. They purify themselves, they put on clean garment. There's a change of clothes. And this sounds strikingly familiar to Ephesians chapter 4 that says this, As a believer, put off your old self, belonging to your former manner of life, and put on the new self in accords with righteousness and holiness. There's this changing that's real in his life. And then they travel. God protects them all the way on the journey. Um, and then we get to this moment where God reminds Jacob, Hey Jacob, and all your struggles, here's a reminder, your name is Israel. Your name is not Jacob. Be who you were made to be. Right? Jacob keeps trying to ruin that, but God keeps bringing it back up. He's this child of promise. All is right with him and the Lord. It's wonderful. It's, it's, it's truly one of those mountaintop moments. And you know I giggle because this Genesis roller coaster is about to come to a crash again in this moment. They head to the promised land. On the mountaintop moment, Rachel gives birth to one child we hadn't mentioned yet, Benjamin, the last of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in doing so, what happens to her? Somebody tell me. She dies. She dies. Right in the middle of a mountaintop moment. And so, it's a cool moment right before that. And the cool moment is this. As she's giving birth, she, as the child is being birthed, she names the child, and I meant to put it on the screen, but it's not. She names the child Ben-Oni. Meaning, this is the son of my trouble. And Jacob, being reminded of God's grace through this whole journey, says, no, 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 no. His name shall not be Ben-Oni, son of trouble. His name shall be Benjamin, son of God's wealth. God changes everything. And then she had once said in chapter 30, verse 1, Give me children or I die, and now the gift of a child kills her. It's the irony of the text. What a beautiful, it's a crazy beautiful text. Then later on after that, his son Reuben lays with his half-brother's mother, his dad's concubine, and his own one-fourth mom. That's in there. Like for all y'all who are looking for a crazy movie, Genesis. That's all you need, brother and sister. Read the book. He, he sleeps with her. Um, they arrive back home. Jacob and Israel get to see their dad Isaac one more time in the promised land. Isaac dies, and Jacob and Esau bury him and wait for it. Do y'all remember what Isaac's name meant? The son of Sarah, who was not supposed to have a child after reaching the age he reached. Everybody laughed, and his name meant the son of laughter. Church, we've made it to where now laughter is laid to rest. It's a crazy story. And God's grace in this moment can only make you smile. He's got him thus far. Genesis 36, last movement. All of Esau's lineage is listed. There are three wives, five sons, and the entire clan of the Edomites. They would eventually become Israel's rivals. And a noted person out of the ancestry of Esau is Herod the Great, who, as we all know, conspired to kill our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the end of that movement. What a text. What a text. 
Y'all ready for takeaways and sing again? Take communion? Worship in the Lord? Okay, good deal. Let's do it. Two notables as we walk away from this text. Two notables. Number one, I think if we look at the grand scheme, I think we could see the notable of... Churches, it's our responsibility to forgive. Today's text, practically and specifically, it's our responsibility to forgive. If you've slept the whole time today, at least hear that. At least hear, it's our responsibility to forgive. Jacob models Matthew chapter 5 2,000 years before it was written. Matthew chapter 5 says this, If you're at the altar and you remember that a brother has something against you, then leave and be reconciled to your brother. Jacob does this. Out of all the things he got wrong, he headed back to get right with his brother. So lest we look at Jacob and go, I'm glad I'm not Jacob. If you have unforgiveness in your heart and are not willing to go seek forgiveness, you're worse than Jacob. He goes back and he seeks forgiveness. Notice that that text does not say, if you're at the altar and remember that you have something against your brother. It doesn't say that at all. It says, if you remember your brother has something against you, then go seek forgiveness. It's that next step. It's that next level. It's maturity. And in this, I've put on the... I actually didn't put on the screen. There's, there's a doctor, and the doctor's name is Dr. Stephen Marmer of UCLA. I would shoot you a video. Actually, we'll post it on the website this afternoon. That I think if you're in this room and you, you're having an issue with forgiveness in your life, it would do you well to watch the five minutes. It's just simply this that we should seek exoneration with some people. Some of y'all need to seek true exoneration, meaning wiping the slate entirely clean with somebody. Some of y'all need to do that today. We need to learn from Jacob today and do that today. Restore the relationship to innocence. This happens when it's a genuine accident that occurred and you're not willing to acknowledge that it was a genuine accident. It was a genuine accident. They're truly sorry. And you need to seek true exoneration. And some of you are like, oh, that's not my situation. Well, here's a message for you in forgiveness. is Maybe you just need to seek forbearance. Forbearance being, you know that that person offered an apology, but it was only a partial apology. So you're like, I don't really know what to do. I don't know if I can wipe the slate clean. Well, maybe you need to offer them forbearance. Forbearance meaning this. It was a genuine accident. Maybe they're not truly sorrow, sorrowful, but you can overlook the offense. You can be the bigger man or woman. Maybe you're in that type of situation. And you can move on carefully. Move on going, hey, we're going to move towards exoneration, wiping the slate clean, but we can, wipe this, we can just move on here. Okay? So maybe some of y'all are in that state. That's a little bit different, right? And then maybe some of y'all are like, no, true, that's not my situation at all. I can't move into exoneration, and I can't move into, move into forbearance because they're not offering a partial apology. They're just blame-shifting it on everybody else. Maybe you just need to move into release, another type of forgiveness. Release simply being this. There was utter betrayal, and there was abuse, and it was gross and rotten, and there's no apology. But here's the deal. Either you will choose to release them, 
or they'll live rent-free in your brain and rob you of all joy and happiness. And the gospel says you can let it go, focus on Christ, and let them go too. Maybe some of y'all need to be there. But no matter where you at, forgiveness is a lesson we all can learn in some shape, form, or fashion from the life of Jacob. So where are you at on that scale? Don't allow unforgiveness to sap you of joy, happiness, and peace. And again, there's a five-minute video I would love for you all to watch if you need that. I would love to send it to you. And then number two, takeaway. God's ability to redeem and make usable is scandalous, but His ability to redeem and make usable is true and not just forgive us. Jacob's life was in a constant mess. Jacob was not likable. Jacob was not perfect. Jacob was not even admirable. However, Jacob had one only hope that he would receive the righteous substitution from someone more righteous than him. And he did. And through Christ, we can as well. Christ didn't come to just forgive us. He came to forgive us, and as Tyler says often, to also like us. And to make us usable, no matter what we've done. So Jacob's only hope was one who could understand all of sin's temptations. Jacob's only hope was one who would never give in to any of those temptations. Jacob's only hope was one who could earn the pleasing gaze of the Father, but one who would trade in the pleasing gaze of the Father to drink the full cup of God's wrath, and one who would take on death's curse, rising victorious, and become the innocent substitutionary lamb, so that whosoever would believe could become the children of God. That was Jacob's only hope. And it's our only hope too. The gospel at the end of every story. As the band comes back up, I hope you see it, church. I hope you see that the life of Jacob is not about Jacob at all. It's not. There's some cool stories, and I hope your small groups have had some fun times talking about it. But the life of Jacob is not about Jacob. The life of Jacob is about a God who in His grace consistently delivers His covenant children from drowning in our own sin. Praise be to God. That's the story of Jacob. The life of Jacob is not about a momentary grace, but the hope of a future eternal grace in a Messiah to come, Jesus Christ, the superstar. Church, I'm going to end with a quote from Martin Luther that most of you know. It's found in the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And if nothing else, maybe you'll see these lines a little different because of our study for the past five weeks of Jacob. Martin Luther said this, Did we in our own strength confide? If we did, our striving would be losing. Were the not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Don't ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabbath is His name from age to age the same. 
and he must win the battle. And then I'm going to add on an appendix. Because we never will. Praise be the Lord. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, as we enter into communion, reflecting the climax of the worship service, and I pray that as we take communion and as Tyler leads us through the gospel, that we'll contemplate Jacob and how we identify with Jacob and how the table reminds us of the relentless grace that chased after us through the saving work of Jesus Christ. And I do pray that all the practical things will be true of us today. That we'll be mature enough to walk up to people and not just assume things and to see what you're doing behind the scenes. That we won't defile our lives or those around us by choosing to partially obey you. God, that we'll realize life is not about us, but about your scandalous grace. All those things. I pray we do think of all those practical things. The ripples effect of our lives. All the, Yes. But Lord Jesus, if you would be gracious to us in these last worship moments, make us come face to face with the relentless pursuit of grace through the shedding of your own blood for us, a bunch of Jacobs.